Okay, if you'll remain standing for the reading of God's word. We're in Acts 28, 1 through 10. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. And as you are doing, if you would, uh, please just pray with me this morning. God and Father, we stand fearful in front of your word, knowing that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts both bone and marrow. Lord, Father, we ask you that you would cut our hearts uh, this morning, that you would allow for the word this morning to shape and to form us this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that your son Jesus would get great glory this morning. Uh, because of what you have said here in your word. Lord, help us to dive deeply there to discover what it is that you are saying, uh, not just to the readers of Acts when it was written, but to us today as well. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We entrust uh, this great work uh, to your name, to your fame, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder if you have ever lived in a season that you would characterize as being like a season of spiritual attack. Uh, maybe for a lot of us, just the last like year and a half has felt very much that way, just that there is a sense of spiritual warfare kind of in the air. Now, here's what I know. I know that just by saying the word spiritual warfare, there can be a lot of things that kind of come to mind. There can be a, a lot of different directions that we can go with uh, just the topic of spiritual warfare. Uh, for some of us, we can think of spiritual warfare as kind of a spiritual superstition, as it were. For those uh, of us maybe who are not given to that, maybe we face it a little bit more with skepticism. It's not something that we think about all that much. But uh, this morning, what I want to uh, just impress upon the people of City Church is to say that we must be realists. We must be realists. Now, what do I mean by realist? That's kind of a strange way of kind of putting it. Uh, does that mean that maybe we would be more skeptical? Uh, no. Here's the truth. Uh, the spiritual world that God uh, knows and has uh, created and uh, exists in, the spiritual world, the one, the thing that is uh, unseen to us, the things that we don't see, has been inexistent, uh, as far as we know, for all of eternity. 
God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like man. He's existed in the spiritual world, and that has existed for eternity. But the world that we live in, the one that we see day in and day out, is something that was created. It's finite. It was created out of nothing, ex nihilo, God created it. And so when you put those two things side by side, an eternal spiritual world that God exists in, has existed in forever, up next to the finiteness of this world, there is something about being a realist that helps us to understand that what is really real probably is the spiritual world, not the one that we see right in front of us. So when I say, hey, we need to be realists at City Church, we need to think of both the physical and spiritual world both simultaneously. Now, for most of us, when we start thinking about the spiritual world, we may think about like demons and angels, and we're certainly uh, told about these things in Scripture. In Mark chapter 5, there was a man with unclean spirits, and he was so uh, indwelled with a legion of demons that he was uh, irrepressible. People tried to put him in chains. They tried to bind him. They tried to keep him from harming himself. He would uh, cut himself with sharp stones, and nothing could really hold him. He was filled with demons, and when uh, he was asked by Jesus, who are you, Um, the demons inside of this man said, we are legion, for we are many. Some of us might not think necessarily about demons. We may think about uh, Satan. And, and think back to the, um, the book of Job where uh, God asks Satan where he's been, and he says, I've been walking to and fro, up and down on the earth. He makes it clear that, he, uh, that Satan is spending time here kind of uh, reaping destruction on this earth. He's real. Demons are real. Angels are real. Satan is real. But it's not something that doesn't affect us. It's not something that's just out there in kind of an ethereal way. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, you, so not those things out there, those demons, those angels, not just Satan, you were dead in your trespasses and the sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we don't just get this idea that the spiritual world is just something out there or maybe something that surrounds us or just picks up demons and angels and Satan. We also need to understand that some way that it affects you. It affects us. It affects the church. There's a real spiritual world. And God has a real spiritual enemy. And there really are demons. And there really is a spiritual war that is raging around us. That some ways we sense but don't always see. So there are kind of two mistakes that we can kind of make in trying to uh, think about spiritual warfare. We can discern spiritual warfare just everywhere. I've known people that are like this. It's just like every little thing is caught up into this spiritual battle. I used to have a a very good friend, very good friend, and uh, we would travel around the country and uh, do all all kinds of uh, trainings and things like this, and he always, we were doing some spiritually significant work, and Satan didn't like, I'm just positive that Satan and demons and evil didn't like the kind of work that we were doing, but oftentimes we would be running late to something, and we'd be caught in traffic, and it was just like, even just being late was uh, caught up into the spiritual world. Uh, it was like we would see an ambulance go past us, and the traffic would start mounting up, and the, the reason that was given was, see, this is just the work of Satan. And, and I sometimes just wanted to say, no, 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 we just, we left late. That's all that it was. It wasn't something that was uh, the spiritual world, like, working against us. We just, we were tardy. We were running late, and that's all that it was. 
So sometimes we can kind of make that mistake to discern spiritual warfare everywhere or in everything. But the other spiritual mistake that we can make is to discern it nowhere, to discount it altogether. Uh, To neglect this, I think, is to be unwise and actually, specifically speaking, leaves us vulnerable to spiritual attack. In uh, Matthew chapter uh, 10, uh, Jesus is talking about the sheep and there are wolves that are kind of after the sheep. And then he gives this other specific uh, instruction to us that we are to be wise as serpents. It doesn't mean that we're to act like serpents, that we're not to to try to be evil, But we are supposed to know and understand the cunningness of evil. We're supposed to know and understand God's enemy as our enemy and have some understanding that there is a war raging around us. So this leads us to a question, a question that I want for us to take up today. And that's the question, what sway does spiritual evil have on the saints of God? What spiritual evil... What sway does spiritual evil have on the saints? And I think we're going to find an answer to that that's very encouraging in Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. So here's what I find here in uh, in chapter 28. This is the last uh, of a series of, uh, of, of stories about Paul. And we're going to finish up next week. We're going to finish up the, uh, the verses after verse 10. But what I find is, is that spiritual snake bites and sickness have no sway over saints. Spiritual snake bites and sickness have no sway over saints. So if, if just talking about spiritual warfare kind of gets you on the edge, it's like, man, this is very uncomfortable. I want you to know that the message today is one that I hope is very encouraging because spiritual snake bites and sickness have no sway over saints. And, and I'm going to invite you this morning to, uh, to really stick with me because there's some exciting things in this chapter. And the gospel payoff, the payout kind of at the end, I think is something that we see going from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's something that I have been very encouraged about this week. And so I just want you to know there's some gold in those hills. So stick with me. As we kind of discover out what this is, there are three things that I want for us to pay attention to, things that we're going to discover along the way. The first is that uh, saints are not superstitious. We're not superstitious. The second is that saints trust in God's sovereignty. And the final one is that saints are saved from spiritual sickness. But all of this kind of happens in the context of the last of Luke's documentary of the travails that Paul is going through. Now, if you've been with us, you know that Paul has been going from all of these cities and he's getting persecuted. People are running him out of town. He's being falsely accused of all of these things that he did not do. He's being beaten. He's being tried. He's being uh, accused by the Jews and then uh, bound up by the Romans and taken and tried unjustly. And last week, Tyler mentioned uh, or was teaching out of the shipwreck. He nearly lost his life there. This suffering we learned last week, was really for two purposes. The first was for us to witness the uh, kind of execution of God's plan to send the gospel out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The, The story of Acts is one where the gospel is going forth. So when we look at this story of suffering, that's the first thing. The second thing that Luke is trying to do is legitimize Paul's ministry so that we pay attention to his testimony. Why? Because 
Along this road of persecution, Paul has been writing these letters that are instructions to us even today. And without knowing the legitimacy of Paul's ministry, we might be tempted not to take those epistles very seriously. So those are kind of the two things that he's doing. But reading this as a narrative of suffering is not the only theme that we can pick up. We can also pick up a theme of spiritual warfare. How do I see that? Spiritual forces really have been arrayed against the gospel to do whatever they can to thwart the gospel's arrival at the ends of the earth. So you can read Acts as a story of suffering, but you can also read it in the context of spiritual warfare. Satan and demons and evil and flesh, powers and principalities are trying to do everything that they can do to keep the gospel from advancing to the ends of the earth. And that's how I want for us to take up a theme this morning as we read this passage. We can also see in the midst of that spiritual warfare a consistent temptation towards unbelief. It's almost as if something is following Paul around, whispering in his ear, saying, don't believe the things that God has said. Don't believe it. Don't be faithful. So that's where we pick up this morning. Saints are not superstitious. Verse 3, what happens here? So they've arrived by shipwreck on this island of Malta, and it starts to rain, and it's cold. And so uh, the, the natives that are there, they come out, the islanders come out, and they welcome them. They're trying to care for them. They show them unusual kindness, and they start to build a fire. And so Paul participates in all of this, goes out, grabs a bundle of sticks, goes back to the fire, delivers those on the fire, and because of the heat, a viper comes out and bites him on the hand. So he just picks up his hand, and he's bitten, and it's so obvious that all of the people around him see what has happened. What must have Paul been tempted to think at this point, immediately after a shipwreck. You've got to be thinking like he's just spent days like not eating, freezing cold, being tossed, not sure, like everybody around him's in chaos and everything. They finally get around a fire and he gets bit by a snake. You've got to imagine that Paul at some point is tempted to just go, what is going on? Great, now I've got to deal with this You've got to imagine that there's some amount of temptation in Paul to think that way. We'll deal with Paul's response here in a moment, but first, uh, we see that there's some other option uh, to, like, interpreting this event by the way of looking at the natives, the islanders. What do they see? They see it in the context of their mythology, in terms of their superstitiousness. What do they say about him? Look, they're with me. They say, no doubt, now, that's a pretty certain statement. No doubt this man was a murderer. Though he has escaped the sea, justice has finally gotten him. And, and if you'll notice something with me, look at, look at the way that this is written. Justice is capitalized there. It's a curious thing. A good, a good student of Scripture would notice that there is a capitalization there. What is it that Luke is getting at? Justice here is a stand-in for a fake god named Dike who's responsible for kind of meeting out this almost like karmic kind of justice. So they're thinking, man, this guy escaped uh, from the chaos of the sea. Now he's here, but he's got to be a murderer because this viper just came out of a fire and bit him. The, the, let's give them a little bit of a do. I've never seen that. And, and if you want to try to like take this from Scripture and like really actually feel what's going on here, think of and imagine how you feel when you just see a snake like 25 feet away. 
you're kind of like, there's like a visceral reaction in us. But when we read this text, we just go, oh yeah, Paul got bit by a snake. No, he got bit by a snake in the hand. I want you to imagine if you were one of these native people and had seen this actually happen, you may have been tempted to think, this guy must be a murderer. No doubt, he's finally got what's coming to him. They seek to explain this extraordinary event with fictitious and mythological and superstitious gods. Then what happens? Nothing. That's what happens. Paul doesn't swell up. He doesn't fall down dead. The passage literally says that none of those things happen. And so they go, well, this guy just got bit by a snake in front of me and shook it off into the fire like it was nothing. Maybe he's not a murderer. Maybe he's a god. So they start thinking of him in terms of being a god. Verse 5, he suffered no harm, and while they were waiting, no misfortune came to him. And Luke, almost pretty clear in his amusement, said they changed their minds and said that he was a god. These are superstitious people. Superstitious people are often kind of proved wrong, and they change their minds very quickly. They're fickle, they're foolish. However, Paul is unfazed. He simply shakes the snake off into the fire. He's not fickle and foolish. He's wise and steadfast. Saints are not superstitious. Saints are not superstitious. But unfortunately, I see a lot of professing Christians slipping into superstition. Maybe not quite like this. Maybe they don't see like snakes and they're like, oh, this guy got to be a murderer. But they see things... And they respond kind of in this unjustifiable belief and see causation where it does not really exist. I see a lot of Christians slipping into superstition regarding health and well-being. I I see a lot of Christians' approach uh, to health and well-being have more to do with like superstition than faithfulness to God and His care of them. I see a lot of Christians that are terrified by their own mortality. uh, The prospect of illness is something that is paralyzing to them. And many times I see even Christians kind of uh, resort to superstition and just the dark arts of kind of a pseudoscience and the apothecary. I, I see Christians being the same kind of superstitious. Paul has the opportunity here to be superstitious, but he's not. He's steadfast. He has faith in the promises of God. We're about to get to that. Christian, do not be superstitious. I see Christians being uh, superstitious in their approach to finances and tithes. It's almost like this superstitious Ponzi scheme that they just kind of go, well, if I give the church some money, if I give God his due, he'll take care of me. He'll, He'll give me more. I'll get more back. And so many of us will even tithe, will give money to a church underneath this kind of like you know, feeling like we're going to pay some money in and get something back. And it it feels almost superstitious. If you don't know what I'm talking about, great. God's gifted you with like faithfulness and like a glad and generous heart. For the rest of us, there is just this sneaking thing that like kind of massaged its way in somewhere that we think that if we give, we'll get back. It's a superstition. It's unfaithfulness. It's not following God in faithfulness. I see the same thing in our approach to morality and ethical decision-making. 
We, we do this a lot of times. We, we have this superstition. We're kind of caught up in superstition when we have one eye on the law of God, but then another eye on what culture says is right and wrong, and we get superstitious about it. We, we, we seek cultural right, uh, righteousness rather than Christ-likeness. We're willing to adopt the lingua of false gospels and trust in works to save us from cultural sins, things that the Bible never called sins. We call sins as a culture, and we look to our works to actually assuage whatever guilt or sin we feel like we've committed. Oftentimes, it, listen to me, Christians are getting superstitious rather than looking at what God has commanded them to do and being Christ-like. They're trying to appease the world. They're being superstitious. They're being let over into false gospels. But saints are not superstitious. Saints are not superstitious. How do you tell if you're being a superstitious Christian? If you're justifying irrational behavior based on something akin to like karma, or if you're trying to win respect from other people by making the right noises or saying the right things or agreeing with the right people, you might be being superstitious, led astray by a false gospel. Saints are not superstitious. So, so if saints are not superstitious, then what do they trust in? This leads to the second point, that saints trust in God's sovereignty. Saints trust in God's sovereignty. Verse 5, look at it with me. He shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Paul has this snake like hanging from his hand, and he literally just kind of shakes it off. My, my son is in uh, baseball right now, and he'll get hit by a pitch, and people will be like, ah, you know, walk it off, shake it off, you're doing great, just shake it off. Paul literally does that. He's like, bit by a snake, and he's just like, ugh. And it goes into the fire, and it presumably burns. That's what happens to the snake. How can he not make a big deal about this? His confidence stems from his faith in the promises of God. Now, now if you haven't been with us over the, last, uh, over the journey of Acts, you might be like, what are you talking about? How, how do you relate? Where do you see that uh, promise uh, believing Paul just shaking it off because he believes in the promises of God. Jesus has appeared to Paul and said, you will go to Rome. Jesus has appeared to Paul and he says, you will stand before Caesar. Jesus has stood in front of Paul and said, you will take the gospel to Rome. And so when Paul gets bit by a snake, is he faithful or is he unfaithful? He's faithful. He's confident. You could say that he has become numb to suffering. You could make that accusation of Paul, that he shakes it off because he's like, of course this is going to happen. Why? Because he's been through a lot. He's had a lot of suffering. So maybe he's just being numb to the suffering. Or you can say that he's settled into the expectation that he's just going to be hindered along the way and he's just thinking that the snake bite is the next thing that's kind of in his way. However, I think like the natives, and when they saw this, uh, this serpent as a spiritual force, as a spiritual warfare, that's what I think that they thought. I think that they just arrived at superstition. I think Paul knew the significance of this event. 
Paul is a learned Pharisee, and the fact that it was a snake that came out of a fire would not have escaped his notice. Paul, knowing that this wasn't some just random accident, but a spiritual attack, is not led into unbelief. He's not thinking that this is just something that happened. He's not thinking that this is a coincidence. He's going, I know that something is trying to inhibit me, prohibit me from getting to Rome, and I'm not going to spend one second disbelieving God's promises, disbelieving Jesus' promises that I will go there. Rather, what we see is that Paul sees the spiritual warfare as God's enemy trying to tempt him to unbelief, and he chooses to trust in God's sovereignty. Saints trust in God's sovereignty. But Paul, Paul's been through this before. God has saved him from the sea. He's saved him from political persecution. He's saved him from plots uh, to literally murder him along the way. He's even been busted out of jail. Paul has spent now two times sitting in a jail cell, and he's just let out. That's how powerful God is. He just releases people from prison whenever he wants, and Paul knows that. Ultimately, Paul is trusting in God's overarching power and his specific promise that he will be delivered to Rome. So I wonder this morning, as you hear that saints trust in God's sovereignty, I wonder, saint, what promises of God can you commit to memory to practice this kind of trust? Did God promise you that you were going to go to Rome? That you were going to declare the gospel to the ends of the earth the same way that he did with Paul? No. So it's, it can feel like, I don't understand how this is applicable to me. Paul received that promise. I didn't get that promise. How can I have the same kind of confidence when I am snake bit? I wonder what kind of promises God has made to you that you can commit to memory that can render this kind of trust, this kind of faith. Maybe your sin is just always before you and you feel condemned. Maybe you just live a life of just, you've got this like general sense all the time, this cloud in the back of your mind that you are condemned. And what you need to do is memorize that there is therefore, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you feel alone and you need to memorize how many times in Scripture God has said, Behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age, Jesus says, you're not alone. You feel it, but you can recite that promise to yourself. You can let God's word speak back into that area of potential temptation to unbelief. Maybe you feel chaotic, and you need to hear that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Maybe you're feeling unloved, and you need to hear that all who are led by the Spirit are God's sons. You've been adopted. You're not unloved. You're loved like a son. Maybe you feel like you have nothing in this world and you need to memorize that in him you have an inheritance. Maybe you feel unrighteous and you need to memorize that in Jesus you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that means that no, a, God, a righteous God cannot inhabit an unrighteous place. He's made you holy. He's been, made you righteous. You are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Coming back to the spiritual warfare theme, I've got one last verse that, if you're willing to write it down, I think might be something that uh, the people of City Church could just use as a mantra moving forward. 1 John 4.4 John 4.4 says, You have overcome the spirits of the Antichrist. How? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. How can we face spiritual warfare? How can we face suffering? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What if Satan takes an interest in me? What if demons come and shoot fiery arrows at me? He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Do you see what I'm saying? We can practice the same kind of trust that Paul has. Shaking it off, shaking it aside, shaking it into the fire, whatever temptation we have to unbelief, saints, saints trust in a sovereign God. That's what we do. Saints trust in God's sovereignty. We trust in his sovereign promises. Paul trusts because Jesus is greater than the snake. That's where we're going this morning. That's the gospel connection for you this morning. He's been bit in the hand by a snake. He knows that it is spiritually significant to have a snake bite. This is not lost on him. But he trusts because Jesus is greater than the snake. You see, the promises of Jesus are greater than the danger and the temptation of the snake. Paul knows this. How does he know this? Because Paul knows the powerlessness of a spiritual snake bite. So he was literally bit by a snake. But he knows that there is something about a snake bite that is spiritually significant. Why? Because this is not just what happened to him. It's what always happens. In Genesis chapter 3, there is a snake in the garden. But Adam and Eve were not afraid of him. Why, why were they not afraid of the snake? There's this talking snake in a tree. Why were they not afraid of him? Because they didn't even know what death was. Didn't even know what death was. And that snake that's there in the garden, the deceiver, Satan himself, knew that his physical bite would have no effect. Have you ever thought about that? There's this snake in the garden who's wanting to cause death. Why didn't he just go slither up while Eve and Adam were there sleeping? Why didn't he just bite them? There was no such thing as death. So in order to bite creation, in order for the venom of sin to come in, in order for death to enter the world, what does that snake do? It's not a physical bite, but a spiritual one. He lies. Did God really say that? Did God really say this thing, you know, you could be like God. You, Eve, could be like God. You, Adam, y'all could be like God. You could have the same knowledge of life and death that God has. And when Eve ate the fruit and gave it to Adam, the snake's poison coursed through the veins of humanity, and death came by a snake bite. Death came by a snake bite. That very day, God cursed the snake, saying, one day this woman's offspring will crush you. And ever since then, think about this, ever since then, there's been a spiritual war raging here on this earth that was created to be perfect, 
This earth was created formless, but we were supposed to be cultivating it. We were supposed to be bringing glory to God by cultivating and by being fruitful and multiplying and by naming things and taking dominion, by having just an everlasting communion with God. And by one snake bite, death enters in. Temptation brings about death. Death brings about decay. Decay brings about the spiritual war that has raged around us for millennia. But he says the woman's offspring will come and crush him. You see, Jesus was tempted in the same way. The snake out in the wilderness promises him and offers him everything if he would just bow down to the snake. And unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus did not sin. He did not give over to that temptation. Jesus is the one who looks at the snake, hears the lies of the snake, and recites back Scripture, recites back God's promises. But after being tempted and not breaking at the cross, the snake finally does bruise the heel of our Savior, just as it was proclaimed in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus has a bruised heel. On that day, Jesus died by a spiritual snake bite. He had all of the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him put on him. But then on the third day, Jesus returns the favor. He bruises the head of the snake by raising from the dead, defeating its deadly venom. Death came into this world by temptation, by spiritual snake bite. Death has been crushed when Jesus crushes the head of the snake. And, and Paul knows this. We know that Paul knows it because he even tells the Corinthians, he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Sting of death, where, uh, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. Paul knows that Jesus made an end to the spiritual venom. Paul knows that no snake bite, whether physical or spiritual, has any sway over him because he trusts in the snake crusher. I want to, just for a moment, call your attention to Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Paul says this, this is how we know that he trusts in this promise. Yes, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers, the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with the full coverage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is what Paul believes. This is what Paul believes about life and death. This is what Paul believes about trusting God. He believes that to live is an opportunity to live for Christ, and that to die is just to go and be with him forever. What is there to be afraid of? Paul trusts the sovereign promises of Jesus because he's made an end to sin. So he can live or he can die. It's win-win for saints. So no spiritual snake bite has any sway over the eternal destiny of the saints. But I, I wonder if we'll take up the question of whether or not uh, the venom, the snake bite, 
has any effect or sway over us in this life. So all we've said is, is that he's made a way for us to go into eternity. I wonder whether or not he's made a way for us to live now. I wonder where the encouragement is this morning, and that is this. Saints are saved from spiritual sickness. Saints are saved from spiritual sickness. Where do I see that? In the following verses. In the following verses, we discover that there is sickness all over this island. I'll kind of expound on that here in just one moment. But it says this, Now in the neighborhood of that place where the lands belonged to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So he's living in this man's house. And it happened that the father of Publius laid sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed. And putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They were cured. Paul recognizes that the promises of God bring healing. And in this instance, it was physical healing. But he's also declaring alongside of this a spiritual healing. The father of Publius laid sick, and Paul comes, and he prays and heals him. Then the other people, they see that, and they bring all of their sick, and what happens to them? It says they were cured. The Apostle Paul comes to this island which even up until the 19th century had something called Malta fever. It was something that that was actually studied by modern-day doctors. Malta fever, what it was is that the goat's milk on that island had a certain type of bacteria that would give you fever for years and give you dysentery, sometimes even kill you. The people on that island, even the people that had like goods shipped to those spaces around them, they knew that this was a real illness. We know now today that this is likely Malta fever caused by a bacteria. Paul shows up, attends to him, prays for him, lays hands on him, cured. Something, something that normally took years to go away. Sometimes people would die from this or live with uh, things for years and years, dysentery for years and years, and he's healed in this moment. Wherever the gospel goes, it brings healing. With Paul, it brought physical healing. There's no fear of harm. Today, the gospel still brings healing. You, You might be tempted to ask, physical healing? You bet. Are we going to start calling people up, laying hands on them, getting everybody healed here, taking people's money for healings? We're not going to do that. But does the gospel have the power to heal people? I believe that it does. I believe that it does. If you are lying sick, if you have something that ails you, ask for your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you. Ask and call your elders to come and lay hands and pray for you. We'll do it. We'll do it in faith that he will provide healing, physical healing. I believe it. Does he always heal? He doesn't always heal. He doesn't always choose to glorify his son by physical healing, but you know what he is always faithful to do? He is always faithful to bring spiritual healing when a person repents and has faith in Jesus to save them from their sins. How does this apply to City Church today? The church ought to be a place where the spiritually sick 
of our city come for spiritual healing. Not self-help books, not for modern-day religions, not for Oprah's next book. They ought to come to the church. They ought to come to the church. This ought to be a place where we really do believe that people are spiritually and physically healed. I want to just impress on you this morning, City Church can be a place where you invite people in. It can be. I told you during the first uh, quarter of this year that I wanted, to, uh, I-, I wanted for us to lick some wounds, honestly, trusting God to build out a trajectory and to start taking some steps of faith. But I told you that we would get into the second and third quarter of this year and that we would start inviting people in. I want you to consider it. Who might it be that God is asking you to invite into a place of spiritual healing? Now, for some of us, we get uncomfortable about this. It's like, I thought that the church was for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Yes, it is that place. It is also a place of healing for the spiritually sick The church has the power of the gospel. It is the antidote for the snake bite of death. And we here at City Church intend to administer that antidote to anyone who would come. The church ought to be the place where uh, spiritual healing continues uh, and where people who have been spiritually healed continue to recover. That's my vision for this church is that we would not uh, find ourselves trying to uh, be something that we're not. And that's like completely righteous people. We're not that. We're not finished. We have been spiritually healed. We are, if you are in Christ, you can be certain of your eternal salvation. We still have a lot of things that are like tethering us, don't we? We still have some pain. We still have some suffering. We still have some spiritual sickness. The church needs to be a place for people who are on the road to recovery. And we need to enable people to pursue that kind of righteousness. City Church must be a place where saints are being every day sanctified from spiritual sickness. Can you imagine if the spiritual equivalent of Paul on Malta were true here? What did I mean by that? Paul laid hands on people, and they were healed. Can you imagine if God blessed City Church to be a place of spiritual healing and that people came in, heard the great news of the gospel, and were cured in their hearts of an eternal sickness? I can't. I hope that you can too. I hope that your soul longs for it. I hope that you yearn for it. I hope that you thirst for it so much that you're willing to share with other people and to invite them into a place of spiritual healing. I want for City Church to be a place that is transformational as we continue to pursue a revival of joyful worship. Spiritual sake bites and sickness have no sway over you, saint. Spiritual snake bites, the original curse, has no sway over you if you are in Christ. Sickness here in this world, the continual struggle against sin, it doesn't have to bind you up. You can be relieved of it. Spiritual snake bites and sickness have no sway over you, saint. I wonder if you believe it. Pray with me. God and Father, we believe that because of your snake-crushing son, 
neither snake nor sickness has any sway over us. Lord, we are encouraged. We are encouraged to see Paul's example of faithfulness. He did not bend. He did not break to temptation. He believed your promises. Help our unbelief, Father. Help us to be faithful like Jesus. Help us to be faithful like Paul. Father, we pray humbly for the salvation of others. Would you be saving those who are still under death's reign? Would you help them be healed of their sickness? Would you help them pursue everlasting life with Jesus Christ? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.